afternoon and welcome to the Tortoise Shack Sunday special. Um, this is uh, this is the fifth, I think, Martin, of our of our second series season, is it? Um, and it's already, it's, yeah, and and actually. It's been great because, well, believe it or not, but the audience, the listenership for this bloody thing, people go insane. Um, I, and, and I'm going to give out to you as well because there's, 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 well, there's thousands that listen to Sunday special. I need you to listen to the ones about the tax justice, the tax uh, so, social justice issues that we put out there as well. You don't just need to tune in for the Sunday show. Please listen to some of the, the great guests, including the, the prison office whistleblower, Noel McCree's recent podcast about developments on CCTV and what was going on in Port Leash Prison. I think that's really important. Important. So I'm giving out to listeners at the outset. Um, just to, we are joined. We have a great uh, lineup again this week. We have our regular contributor, um, all things NI and uh, Good Friday advocate and, and friend of the pod, Emma D'Souza. Emma, good to see you again. Good morning, all, or afternoon, I should say now. Yeah, um, we have Sinn Fein's spokesperson for health, David Cullinan. David, thanks for taking the time to talk to us. No problem, uh, Tony. And we are joined by comedian and 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 um, as what was he it described yourself as a younger, more charismatic Tony Groves. Um, that's, yeah, yeah, that's who I try emulate and try to be. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Killian Sunderman, K- Killian, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us today. It's really it's a pleasure. Uh, but I am going to come to you first, David. Um, <laughs> we've seen what I've been referred to as the speeding up of the slow death of Slanchikar this week with another resignation of uh, a high-profile member of SIAC, um, Anthony O'Connor, who, you know, regular enough on this podcast as well. Um, can I get your sense of it, first of all, where where we stand and, and what, because Stephen Donnelly's written back and more or less thrown a little bit of shade at the people who've resigned in the last 24 hours. What's your sense of where we stand now, David? Yeah, uh, thanks, Tony. But, well, first of all, I don't accept that the big reforms in healthcare, which Schlantecare promised, are dead in the water. I've seen some people talk about that over the last uh, number of weeks. Obviously, there is a vote of no confidence in this government's approach to healthcare and their commitment to those big reforms. But there are many people, both inside and outside of healthcare and inside and outside of the political system, who are genuinely committed to those big reforms and who want, as I do, to see a truly Irish National Health Service. Obviously, I want to see an All-Ireland Health Service eventually, but I want to see right, right now and here and now in this state a more equal health service and one where we do separate uh, private healthcare from the public system, where we have universal GP access, but also, crucially, where we make the investments in our acute hospitals, but also in primary and community care. And I think the problem, Tony, is that the people who are tasked with leading those big changes and leading those reforms at the very heart of Schlantecare have stepped away and resigned. And what we need to fully understand is why. Is this political resistance? Is it institutional resistance, both from within the system and outside the system? And if it is, in my view, it has to be phased down because almost the entire political system have signed up to Schlantecare and those big promises of change. And it's the responsibility of the political system to ensure that those changes happen. Um, okay, accepting that. But I mean, Anthony O'Connor couldn't have been any more clearer, in my opinion, in his statement where he said there were people who weren't qualified on uh, to, to, to do the job. And he felt that that might be some form, like, again, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but he did say, you know, that they were unqualified. 
and then when you fought when you like last week we had um Joe Haslam on from from Madrid and his mother was also a member who resigned and I think it's six members in the last three months have resigned I mean they're not going for nothing David they they feel that there's genuinely no political will to do this and I'm reminded I think it was the second or third podcast we ever did on Reboot Republic was with Sarah Burke who was one of the founders of the the document that launched um Slauncher Care. You mean like that's going back four years ago now. And every time every year there was supposed to be more milestones met and none of them have been met. So I put it to you that it's that that it's it's no different than anything else that people ask what are we doing they say well we're doing slauncher care but it hasn't made any progress and you know you're you're the, you're the spokesperson for the, the the largest party now in in Leinster house we have to be putting pressure on them to get this done absolutely which is why in Sinn Féin's alternative budget that i launched uh, on thursday last uh, in dublin we set out what we would do over a 10 year time period to bring about those big changes in healthcare which are necessary so we committed the funding, for example, 120 million euro that would enable the start of the transition to an Irish National Health Service to begin phasing out private health care from public hospitals, but also to expand GP care. And we can take the same argument like your programme has dealt uh, a lot over the last while and rightly so with the crisis in housing. And the big problem that we have in housing is that successive governments, which in my view are conservative governments, who have allowed landlords and institutional uh, investors and developers set policy in housing where public land is used for for private housing and so on. The same is happening in healthcare. So we have uh, a private system embedded in our acute hospitals. We have consultants who are carrying out private practice in public hospitals where we as taxpayers and people who don't have health health insurance are subsidising private treatment of public hospitals. Almost the entire element of our uh, primary healthcare service is privatised. And now we're seeing it seep in and creep into community care as well, with much more outsourcing of of treatment and care. That's not something that I've created. I want to see a different type of health service. So I met recently with Robert Watt, who's the Secretary General in the Department of Health. And I also met with Paul Reid, who is the Director General of the HSE, And the reason why I met them is to to say to them, if I was Minister for Health and if we were leading a government, we're serious about these big reforms. So can they happen? And the answer to the question I posed is yes. So then it comes down to, on the one hand, political will, but also facing down any institutional resistance to change, because there will always be vested interests, whether it's in housing. And we've talked about that uh, a lot over the last year or whether it's in healthcare. And I go back to what I said, we have to ask ourselves a very basic fundamental question. Do we want a healthcare service where people are treated on the basis of their need and not on the basis of wealth, how much money they have in their pockets? Or do we want to continue to perpetuate a two-tier system where 900,000 people, as we speak today, are on some form of waiting list, waiting for treatment or waiting for access into a hospital for an appointment. And and I believe we want an Irish National Health Service, and that's what we should continue to strive for. I agree with you, David, but I'm gonna I'm gonna push back with you. You said 120 million additional spending, and you've said you out, you've outlined a 10 year plan if Sinn Fein were in, were in government. Um, and the pushback I'd have is that there was, it was a 32 page document, um, and a um, a member of the the health service uh, who I spoke to in the last 24 hours said to me that it was too vague. There wasn't enough in terms of the, the detail. There wasn't enough meat on the bones, and that it was a, that he could have seen that document put out by other parties over the last decade. So I put it to you that the spending, 
you need to we we need to know like and again I'm very conscious that Emma's here so I think we'll make go to her next but um on that basis that if people want to know what what it will look like we want to know you know because you're in Waterford and cardiac care is a huge issue surely that ha- that that extra spending has to mean x number of additional patients treated I, I I think we need to move beyond this is the budget to actually how we reduce those numbers David. Just going to pause the podcast for a moment and ask you to support the work that we do. Um, the Tortoise Shack has no ads, no sponsors, but we have to do these um, things where I basically have to rattle a bucket and ask you to put your hands in your pocket and support the work across the platform. Be that Reboot Republic, be that Glow West, be that Police, Get Well Soon, Vicky. Um, and Conversate Trans episode two was out yesterday um, of season two. We have a lot more work coming this way, but we do need support we we can't keep going if you know if you your favorite host is caroline on glow west or it's vicky on police then you think that if you ever bumped into them you'd love to buy them a cup of coffee this is the way you do it you go to patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack and it's the price of a cup of coffee once a month and it really makes all the difference it helps keep this project going um this is what we do now this is our podcast platform this is our hub and this is how we try to shape conversations and keep the voices and stories coming that that need to be heard that may not find a platform anywhere else and we we really appreciate everybody who supports us if you can it's patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack we'll let you get back to the podcast now and thank you so much it's it means the world if people want to know what what it will look like we want to know, you know, because you're in Waterford and cardiac care is a huge issue. Surely that ha- that that extra spending has to mean X number of additional patients treated. I, I I think we need to move beyond this is the budget to actually how we reduce those numbers, David. That the, the easy part in many ways is to figure out what you want to do. So, so I've been in the role as health spokesperson for Sinn Féin for about 16 months. And when I launched the uh, health document for Sinn Féin on Thursday, the first people I launched it to was over 100 advocate groups, health campaigning groups, healthcare trade unions, and people I've worked with over the last 18 months who have helped shape that uh, policy. And in any budget, it is about numbers and it is about figures and it is about what you would do. Policy is separate. So, you know, you set out in the budget, here's the resources I'm providing to fix a problem. The 120 million, by the way, is only one element of that health budget. It was a 1.4 billion euro package, but that money was specifically for those two big uh, tasks. And it is going to take time to remove private healthcare from public hospitals. But we equally invested in beds, 828 additional public beds, six and a half thousand additional staff, almost all of them on the front line, but also community staff like occupational therapists, speech and language therapists. Uh, in the area of mental health, we proposed additional spend. But we've also worked with others trying to figure out how we make these changes, which is why I've met not just with the senior people in the department or in the HSE, but with all of those groups. And just to say there has been reports. We had the De Butler report, uh, which was commissioned by the department, which set out how you would do this. And you would do it by having public only contracts for consultants. You try and negotiate with the uh, Irish Hospital Consultants Association and the IMO to switch those who are on these hybrid contracts, public and private, onto public-only uh, contracts. And then you substitute private spend in public hospitals with public money over time. That's all been agreed. It's all worked out, uh, Tony. So what's actually missing is the political will. And like all of these things, when you have private money in the mix, 
embedded in the public system, you will have vested interests who will push back. And for me, the fundamental of healthcare is that it's about people treating people in the, in the first instance, uh, but it also has to be a better quality and about ensuring that the fundamentals are right. And when it comes to our money, public money, in my view, it should be invested in public services. And we've committed to, uh, despite what your expert might say is vague, we've committed to the funding to make it happen. But the detail has actually been worked out by experts already. And I'm committed to delivering on that if I was a Minister for Health. The cynic in me and, and the cynic in me says that Slaunch Care was a great idea that was come up with by a group of people without vested interests. But the cynic in me thought immediately that goes into the political realm, that the vested interests, particularly when you have two parties who pushed private health care as the model for solving the, the, the health crisis, it was just too much of an ask. I had no doubt that Slaunch Care was going to crash. But I also think there's a political element to it. And I'm going to go to Emma on the political element. An Irish National Healthcare Service is the backbone of a united Ireland. Without it, you cannot have one. Do you think there's an element of on purpose to this by the powers that be within the Republic oh my God, to Martin. try and slow down any progress <laughs> up north? That is a very cynical uh, view. Um, I think that uh, in the first instance, um, it's important to know that there's a health crisis across the island. So, you know, there can be a tendency, I think, to romanticize the NHS in the north as being this wonderful service. But the reality is it has the worst waiting times in the United Kingdom. People die oh, after but your waiting, you're waiting and like, But your yeah. waiting times compared to ours, Emma, are uh, But also, you know, ballpark. for example, I, I've called up my GP for an appointment and been told that there just are no appointments. You know, so there are systemic issues with the services across both north and south. But as you say, Martin, it is the backbone to United Ireland. Health care and access to a public health care system is going to be a huge deciding factor, a big pull. We've seen recently in polling that there is overwhelmingly majority support, especially among young people for a United Ireland in principle. But once you start getting into the nitty gritty of what that actually means, like national symbols and flags and whether there will be any kind of devolution with Northern Ireland, there's a complete divide north and south, um, except when it comes to healthcare. Everyone agrees that an NHS-style healthcare system would have to be part of United Ireland. And I think that if um, in the south, if they don't get a handle on sponsor care or bring it in a system that is going to actually work, then that is going to be detrimental to any United Ireland campaign. I actually, I have to say, I agree with you 100%. We've spoken to people for a number of years in this podcast, and every one of them has made the point is that, you know, that like there are people, as you, and I'm sure you know them, and David, you know them, we all do, that, that live and work in the Republic, but might, 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 might take the train up to Belfast to get whatever other services there is in terms of the health service. There are those, and, and you know, that's because they, they are resident in both jurisdictions and they can do that. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm killing. I'm laughing because I know your, your dad is, your dad is German. And I'd say he looks in on the outside and says, what, 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 um, <laughs> why, why can't we get, why can't we have this, um, these things that, you know, in many countries, including, including we're taught of as just, um, fundamental rights b- before, you know? Yeah. Well, my poor dad is, had some issue i won't say what but uh for quite a while now and he's been dealing with it and it's just been months and months of him 
trying to get appointments and all that kind of stuff. And he just said to me there yesterday in the garden, he says, I think I'm going to go to Germany and get this sorted out. So there you go. Not that's... just people going over the border. I think he's flying all the way back to Germany. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> and, and that's not unusual. Like, it's just not unusual. David, I suppose if it was the last challenge I'd put to you, if we gave you the reins in the morning and said to you, what are we going to do about um, the actual, we've lost six talented people from, from SIAC now. How do how do we start to turn turn back the tide? Because that's whatever about Stephen Donnelly's statement this morning and the sound of um, him pushing back. It's not good when we're losing talented people who actually believe in the project, who who feel that they're getting nowhere. What do, what are Sinn Fein going to do to try and to try and make this a live topic now? Uh, well, first of all, I, I just want to agree with Emma that uh, we shouldn't look at any other healthcare system as perfect either. And certainly in the north, we have big challenges with waiting lists. We also have uh, long wait times for GPs, uh, much longer than we have in the south. So I don't look to any other jurisdiction, whether it's the north or anybody else, that they have all the answers. But on a European scale, we're certainly outliers in the hybrid version that we have, which is very unfair. It's a two-tier system. What I would do if I was Minister for Health, the very first thing would be to ensure that the HSE and the Department of Health at a senior level uh, are on the same page as I am, that we're going to make this happen. Uh, we've had two reports, as I said, the Schlontica report, and then we've had the, the other report as well that was headed up by experts that set out what we need to do. And if you don't have all of those elements facing in the same direction, then you're going to meet this type of institutional resistance. So you have to send out a very clear message as a Minister for Health, we're going to do this. Then you have to do what you said earlier, Tony, which is set out how you're going to do it. So if I can just give one example of why I don't trust Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael when it comes to this, because, you know, it actually does create a cynic in all of us that maybe the problems in healthcare can't be fixed when time and again we have governments that, that don't even try and deal with the problem and then behind it all we have the human side of it like for the 900,000 people who are on a waiting list uh, 200,000 of those are children each and every one of those uh, are people who have uh, their own experiences some of them in pain waiting for too long so you have to be able to ensure that you can actually do what you say you would do so I spent a lot of time not just working out what I want to do but how I would do it and you do it by making sure that you link in with the people who know what they're talking about. You engage with them. Uh, you you uh, have a sense of how you're going to do it, having listened to experts, and then just have the political drive to do it. And I did a meeting recently with my own party president, Mary Lou MacDonald, and Piers Doherty. And I said to them that if I was given the job as Minister for Health, I would need their support. You would need the cabinet. You would need the Taoiseach. And you would need the entire uh, government and indeed the system have uh, a steel about them that we're going to drive on with this. We'll face down vested interests. Yes, we'll engage with people and try and bring people on board. But you see, when it comes to the fundamentals, you're saying to the system, we are doing this. We are going to make the transition and we are going to provide the resources. And, you know, despite criticisms, and I take any criticism that comes my way in terms of Sinn Féin's policy on health or anywhere else, uh, I believe that our policies would make a big difference. And I believe that if, we, if I was given the chance as Minister for Health, I would fundamentally understand the problems that we have in the first place, the deeply unfair system. I'd know what needs to change, which is that we have to invest in capacity. We have to phase public uh, uh, health care out of public hospitals. We have to transition to universal GP care. 
And that's complicated because we have to increase the workforce. And that means uh, training more people, training more consultants, training more GPs, training more, uh, more healthcare professionals, which has a knock-on consequence for higher education. So in, it's not easy. Uh, but what I would say is if I was Minister for Health tomorrow, come with me on that journey and with all of those, because it isn't just Sinn Féin. There are others in the political system who wanted to work. And I can just say one final thing. We can all be cynics. I've had a good run of it. No, we can all be we can all be cynics and say that it's never going to change. The people who don't want change want us to be cynics. Let's turn that on its head and actually say we are going to change it. Okay. D- David, I just want to, uh, to remind listeners broadly. We were there actually during the pandemic when we uh, took control of private hospitals. They wanted people to pretend that some things that the eyes wanted our eyes to forget the things that we'd already achieved. And we were there in many ways that we could have done. So it, it was done with a stroke of a pen um, and it can be done again. So let's not forget the evidence of our own eyes um, and let's not let's not forget that. So I, I do need to move on. And Emma, I do want to come to you, actually, because it's never anything but entertaining. And I mean that in a cringe, fat wordy kind of what the f- is going on. But like we're, we're seeing cues for pe- for petrol in, in the in the UK on on throughout you and guys brandishing knives we've seen the up how do i put this without being trying to trying to be gentle um more racism coming to the surface in certain aspects of some of the violence that we've seen and we've seen empty shelves and then we see up the border where it's less impacted people saying scrap the protocol Uh, we want to be just like that um emma you must be looking at it going what what are we thinking yeah, I mean, uh, I, I do despair just a little bit that we continue to be trapped in this never-ending cycle of hypocrisy and exceptionalism and ignorance, you know, because obviously what's happening in England is nothing to do with Brexit, right? Um, and the protocol is, you know, there's mass opposition in the north of the protocol, all this stuff we hear every single week up north, and it's just totally not true. Um, and so it is frustrating, especially this week, we saw the uh, unionist parties all uniting in opposition to the protocol. Meanwhile, it would have been much better to see them uniting on issues like the cuts to universal credit and uh, the increases in energy prices and the actual crisis that does exist in Northern Ireland, which isn't anything to do with the Northern Ireland protocol. And yeah, I mean, the whole thing where they they want to be like England and have us, uh, you know, experiencing the same levels of shortages, but at the same time, don't want us to have the same rights when it comes to access to abortion services or anything else that particular parties such as the DUP don't agree with. So it's just, um, I feel like every time I'm on the show, it's the same stuff. Yeah, but it's really, it's in front of your face now. You're looking at it and there's guys brandishing knives at petrol pumps and they're going, we'd like some of that over here. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, and also, but you can, at least you can offset the energy crisis up north with wood pellets and stuff like that. Oh, at least you, oh, at least you have that there. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I suppose... Just on that topic of um, what's happening in the north around the protocol, around unionist opposition to it, I think it's really important to um, keep in mind Jeffrey Donaldson's statement a couple of weeks ago about how he's going to collapse Stormont if the protocol is not removed within weeks. Um, And yet we don't see uh, that as actually really being something that's going to come to fruition. So it will be interesting to watch what happens at the Conservative Party conference. Um, It's highly anticipated that they will use Northern Ireland uh, to score political points and to continue their 
faux war with the EU. So we would have anticipate either triggering of Article 16, and if not, then lots of rhetoric about how there's mass opposition to the protocol and Northern Ireland is British and therefore needs to be, you know, full part of the United Kingdom. And what they agreed to is somehow, you know, not what they actually agreed to. Uh, so I expect to be a whole new uh, level of that over the next coming days. It, it, but it's, it's Sorry, Martin, I forget like one point. The HGV driver issue, we're, we're having a shortage, obviously, in, in, in the Republic, to use that term, um, and say that, that there's, but we're not impacted as much. But this idea of, you know, give them a three-month license to come back and, and work and then kick them out on Christmas Day, um, all of these things, surely people sit there at the end of the day and say, whatever about, and I'd have friends who 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 live in Belfast and say to me, Tony, I am British and I believe I will always stand on British soil. And you have to accept that and because that's how they are. But I would say it's also, maybe it's also Irish soil and, and, you know, and we can have that conversation and we can still have a bit of crack. Uh, we find we find a balance there somewhere, but at the same time, Emma, they're, they're literally saying to saying to saying to people, you know, Boris Johnson last year, we need to save Christmas, we need to save Christmas um, and reopen during the pandemic, and now it's we need to get drivers in to save Christmas. How how has this stuff been received? In because economically, it's it's a catastrophe. It's an absolute economic catastrophe. If you start seeing the inequality, which was already problematic in in ni in terms of housing health and educational attainment and social mobility some of those communities are worst impacted particularly around social mobility they look around and it's it's we talk in ireland about the first generation now in their early 30s been worse off than their parents are the the truth of it is that in 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 the north of, the, of ireland they, they they experienced that a decade earlier yeah i mean there is um you know systemic lasting economic um inequalities that stem really from the legacy of the troubles um, and that um, is something that is not being addressed at a political level here in the north but in terms of the protocol and how that affects Northern Ireland economically there are huge economic benefits to the protocol that are not being talked about um, in the way that the negative uh, aspects are. There, we see a lot of Northern Irish businesses and companies that are securing lucrative deals that are you know taking over from British manufacturers and actually securing um, economic benefits here in the north and it's you know, that as we see that increase as we see the benefits of the protocol economically continue to grow we will likely see an increase in the rhetoric from unionist representatives because they don't want the benefits of the protocol to become apparent and then when it comes to Christmas you know we see um, the chairman of Marks and Spencers who just so happened to be a Tory um, MP himself um, coming out and talking about how Northern Ireland was constitutionally separated from the rest of the UK and we weren't going to get our turkeys on Christmas. Well, I mean, there's plenty of local turkeys um, in Northern Ireland. <laughs> and and I just, I can't get past <laughs> this idea that, you know, we should be up in arms about not being able to import over turkeys, you know, from England when we have tons of amazing projects here in the North. And like, come on, guys, just go to your local butcher. You know, everyone's we're in the middle vegan of the in Belfast now, anyway. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> everyone's vegan in Belfast now, anyway. David, David, you you want to come in on this, do you? Yeah, just just very quickly. I, I suppose for for those of us on this panel, we find it very difficult to understand why people voted for Brexit, and it has been a source of huge debate over the last number of years. Uh, and for me, it was a, a mix of uh, far right nationalism or right wing nationalism on the one hand, uh, some who are xenophobic 
some who were genuine and who thought that this was about reclaiming sovereignty and this would be good for England. It was, you know, mainly people in England because people in Scotland, as we know, in a majority voted against, people in the North voted against. Uh, but everything that's happened since has shown that Brexit is the disaster that those of us who said it would be has become. And then you look at what's happening in, in England at the moment and across Britain, and he contrasted with the North. And then you have this rhetoric from unionism that the protocol, which actually protects the entire island, protects the all-island economy, but also, more importantly, gives people in the North the best of all worlds. And they want to rip that up. And it's it's again, it's about British nationalism from within political unionism in the North. But while we're talking about that, and it is rhetoric, and it can be difficult, and it does present challenges. And then the comments from the British Prime Minister yesterday don't help either. But a majority of people in the North, including a lot of unionists, want the protocol to remain in place and see Brexit for the disaster that it is. So while there are a lot of loud voices and we have to listen to those voices, and we've said that as well, if there are issues that the DUP or the UUP or others have in relation to the protocol, let's talk about them. Um, but we have to also keep our feet on the ground and realise that the vast, vast majority of people in the North, and especially, I won't say a majority within unionism, but certainly some within unionism and, and, and the majority across the North, want the protocol to remain in place and don't want the North to become like elements of Britain are, where you have uh, the crisis, crisis that they have now. And they don't want to be part of the xenophobia. They don't want to be part of that far-right nationalism. Uh, and, and they want a, a different type of Ireland. So uh, we just have to, to remind ourselves that there are loud voices, but they're not always the majority voice. Well, uh, sorry, the, the, um, I'm, I, I, accepting there was always elements of that. There are absolutely were, but there was also people who felt this was, you know, that the idea of taking back control mattered in terms of, you know, independence and, and inequality can be at the root of a lot of these things, David. And and, and that's how, and I, again, I'm not defending certainly elements of, of racism and xenophobia, but there's also an element of the, 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 the belief that this is a way of pushing back and the bus with 300 million a week or whatever it is. But actually you make an interesting point and, and Killian, people might not know this very much about you, but you you did a lot of work in terms of immigration in your, in your, um, in your, in your actual real life, as opposed to your, your online persona in, in terms of immigration and, you know, push and during the Trump era, and you must see this, mm. you know, things like people saying stuff like three months of uh, bring, bring he heavy, good vehicles, drivers over for three months and, and look at it and despair and think in terms of where we stand now in the context globally on, on a, because we, we, we're looking mm. at 20 years of a legacy after 9-11, Afghanistan falling again, all of these things. And then, you know, people are discussing it in terms of economic units. And I know, yeah, it's shocking. It's really weird when you see something like that, where it's like, we'll have them in for three months and then they can go away, which is just really speaks towards that whole attitude of like someone coming into this country has to be some sort of net benefit to us. And they have to be like, you know, some sort of amazing supreme person to even be recognized as a, a citizen in some way it's really uh i don't know it's really shocking to see things like that it really speaks to some really horrible underlying kind of xenophobic ideas in the british government i think and and can i ask you just to if i could broaden that though i mean we've seen the fall of afghanistan and as i mentioned you 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 were involved with with helping people with immigration issues during the Trump presidency. Mm. Um, like when you look at, at, at Europe now, one of the reactions to the fall of Afghanistan to the Taliban was to build a new, build a new um, 
uh, border. Yeah. I mean, there was when we, I was in New York in 2016 and uh, I got involved with some of this stuff because of what was happening on the uh, border of Mexico. And uh, obviously, everyone around the world was shocked at seeing what was happening with, you know, obviously children in cages, which was, you know, really shocking. But I mean, I originally had gotten involved in um, immigration activism because of what was happening in Europe at the time with the crisis. And, uh, and I did find that there was a certain level of maybe not hypocrisy, but it was very easy for everyone in the world to point at America because they were the loudest and maybe the most, uh, you know, kind of almost proud of what they were doing. Uh, but like, you know, we did have to look at us and see what was happening in Europe. And obviously we have just a really, really horrible history that goes up to the present moment with, uh, I don't know, I mean, even the, the dialogue with Turkey and all of what's going on, it's all really shocking and I don't know, like, it doesn't seem like anything ever seems to get done about it. And it seems like a toxic issue in the European Parliament. And they're, they're, like, we, you know, like we, yeah. we, have, we have to accept it from an Irish perspective that when they, mm-hmm. remember when they, the, oh, Fidesz party cheered when the, the vote went through, that was to stop the, the supporting migrant votes. And yeah. unfortunately, our, um, our Fine Gael MEP um representatives who are members of the the then what was called the centrist bloc um yeah. voted voted with them and you're like this is this is this is difficult now but you also see i i'd ask you is there is there cause for hope when you look at something like say maybe in germany after the after the recent election that it does seem to be that even despite all the pushback and Angela Merkel originally saying they'll take a million refugees in and all that the the recent election results look like a little bit red, more red green than uh, yeah. than that, and I mean, what's your take on that? Sorry. Yeah, I guess I don't know. I mean, it's it's hard with, with Germany. I think they kind of have a history uh, with taking in refugees. It's something that they have culturally in their history. They did it after the war. They did it with uh, in the nineties as well. They kind of do an open doors policy. So I think the people there are much more comfortable with that. Obviously, there was like a horrible kickback, but that kind of happened across Europe. But I kind of think. Germany is a lot more open to kind of having gas arbiters and things like that coming in. Um, so maybe we could just like, you know, take a look at it and see. Well, it's nice to see that this far right thing is kind of like fizzling down a little bit. That's kind of lovely to see. But I, I don't know if I take too much hope. I can't, Maybe I've been listening to Martin talk too much and I've got a bit of cynicism in me. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, we, we also have to accept that there was a perceived self-interest in Brexit for the British people. I mean, we did have the bus with 350 million written across the side. It was sold as a self-interest thing. We'll have more money if, and and I mean, I know quite a few in the UK who voted out of pure self-interest. They thought they would have more money in their pocket once Brexit happened. Now, it hasn't worked out that way. And it's very much you you expect this to end with Snake Plissken rescuing Boris Johnson out of London somewhere. You know, it's just going downhill really, really fast. You love that film way too much. I do love that movie way <laughs> too much. But we are also... There's a, that, that sort of self-interest has spilled over here into Ireland with, uh, and if I point out, data center has been like a priority actually so, can, can i actually yeah I, can i come in martin i'm sorry yeah, but i want to ask because i know david is under time pressure david do you think data centers are, are strategic infrastructure yeah well i think we need an element of them the problem is that we've become too dependent on them and in european terms we have far too many 
So it's like anything, there, there's a balance. Like we have done well in recent years with attracting some big companies in, some high-tech companies which create jobs. But I think when you look at what's potentially coming down the tracks uh, with the energy crisis that we have, with rising costs and people now having to pay more electricity costs, uh, less certainty around gas, uh, and obviously more to do in terms of renewable energy. Um, I think if we have way too many data centers, uh, then it is going. It will create a problem. So I supported the motion that was uh, debated in the Dáil uh, this week brought forward by the Social Democrats that there should be a moratorium and that it needs to be reviewed. And like anything, it's balanced. Yes, there is an element of data centers needed because we all use our mobile phones. We we're all on, use we're, we're computers. On we're on one right now. We're, we're yes, upload, exactly. We're, up, so we're there's, uploading there's, to a cloud. <laughs> exactly. So it's not that we don't need them. It's a matter of, uh, in European terms, do we have too many? Uh, are we you know, overly dependent on them? And uh, is that going to be a danger to us then in terms of our energy needs? Uh, so it's, we just have to balance all of that out. Um, certainly, yes, they're needed. There's nobody saying, I certainly wouldn't say we don't need data centers because I'm doing this from a mobile phone. I'll be using my laptop later. So that would be silly. Um, so it's, again, as I said, a matter of balance. Well, I, I, I've only one point, Martin, and then I'll, I'll, I'll let you come in. Uh, and Because I've, I've written it down. The same lads who want you to believe that data centres shouldn't be linked to blackouts or possible blackouts also want you to believe that the 30 million we're spending on white water rafting has nothing to do with underfunded, underfunded men, mental health services or detox beds. We do need to draw some lines in some of these things. We absolutely do. And I think as a, as a country, we fail to do that too often. We have... we we. we we're ideal for data centers if if we were supported because obviously we we're temperate. You know, it doesn't get too hot, doesn't get too cold. We can do all that, but we also need to to look at what our network is and and do it in a a, a sustainable and more deve- more more way a way that actually doesn't take away from you and I suffering what's been called brownouts. It's like, well, the, the lights won't go down. You just have flickering lights. Ooh, you know, this is it's twenty twenty one, guys. We shouldn't be having that. Sorry. I just I find it difficult to find the line where we can separate government from what's good for business compared to what's good for us. They're not necessarily the same things as we we know to our experience, banking and other other fiascos we've had in the past. And the idea that they would be vital infrastructure, it's it, I'm reminded of that picture of the Amazon warehouse in the middle of Mexico, uh, where all the, the shanty town is around it. I have that vision of Ireland with data centers, but it's just green fields around. But it's the same feel to it in that this is now has supremacy over supply electricity to the ordinary customer. And I'm wondering, how did that happen? How did we get to this place without ever a discussion about getting to this place? What do you think on that one, David? Yeah, I think it's it's it goes back to what I said. It's a it's an issue of balance. It's a good point. Like we have to ask ourselves what they're for in the first place. Are they needed? The answer to that question is yes. So we do need data centers, and they are part and parcel of the huge changes that we've seen in technology in recent years. Uh, the question of how many have ended up being operational on this island or in this state, and then as you said, Martin, the the consequences that might hold. Uh, for for me and you in terms of uh, our electricity needs and uh, and all of that and older people who are vulnerable to uh, fuel poverty is what we need to establish um, and I think it's timely for us to to say listen uh, we need to put a pause on this we need to look at 
the impact that they have on our energy demand. Uh, there are lots of issues happening internationally that are now impacting on our energy supply. I spoke about gas coming from Russia. Uh, even in terms of renewable energies, we've had a drop in wind energy. Now, that's on a temporary basis. We obviously need to invest more in renewable energy. Um, but, but if it's the case that we become the data center capital of Europe, we um, already we are. Have all of these, yeah, and, and we expand on it even more. Um, and, and that's not in the interests of the citizens and the people who live in the state. Uh, then we have a right to question that. Can, can, I, can I, I need to come in. James makes a good point in the comments saying data centers do not employ many people. It's very true. I remember the big hullabaloo in Athlone over the Apple data center planning permission. Will they get it? Won't they get it? And the Barack Obama Plaza employed more people. You know, that's the reality. They were the I facts. Guess, and no, but, no, no, but hang on. And the other thing is, and I push, and David, I don't know what you're, what you're how, how aware you are of this, but the reason we need so many data centers is because a lot of, Mark, we did, we spoke to um, Johnny in, in the ICCL, is because they're collecting re- real-time data on, on everybody. Um, this, uh, what they call the the surveillance capitalism model. So a lot of it is is about why they need it is actually stuff that we'd actually rather they delete it. You know, um, I, I, I have to I have to move us on because we've done yeah. enough on that. But during the week, Tony and I were talking, and Tony is firmly of the opinion that podcasters should be entitled to the pandemic bonus for all the work that they put in over. And and we see different groups. We've seen journalists now saying, "Well, if teachers get this, I am entitled to it." And I think the government has worked this really well. They've set everybody at everybody else's throats about who is more deserving. They couldn't about have made, getting they, a pandemic bonus. They couldn't have made a bigger. Now, I, I, okay, what I will say is the only people worthy of the pandemic bonus, as I said, were the people who didn't start a podcast and the people who didn't make <laughs> banana bread. Okay, <laughs> it was that, and per- possibly the likes of Killian and Big Dirty Frog. And, and and Elner Morton, <laughs> but uh, but Killian, I mean, you must look at that and, and think they couldn't have made a, a bigger hames of it, really, could they? You know, no, no, it's very funny. Everyone's at each other's throats, and it's yeah. I would say that you know, podcasters and online sketch comedians, there's definitely. I think we're a little bit above you guys. But, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, obviously, I'd give the bonus to everybody, but I don't think it's going to work out like that. It's just uh, funny that they just mentioned these things, and then everyone's like, you know, suddenly we just all start going at each other. It seems very well played i think <laughs> but emma, emma in uh, in terms of um the uk and i perspective it was very much like you know uh, again we we kind of adopted that model can everybody stand outside and clap can everybody uh light a candle and put it in yeah. your window has we there did been that. yeah um and uh, but i think and, it's actually important to highlight i suppose in northern ireland something that i think that wasn't um it wasn't something that was publicly out there often was there was tons of people who were completely excluded from any kind of financial assistance during the pandemic. People like my husband, Jake, who was a musician, who is American, and therefore, you know, he doesn't even have a right to vote here. He is on a visa where he has no access or recourse to public funds. So he wasn't entitled as a musician to any kind of financial assistance during the pandemic. And he is not alone. There were tons of people who were the exact same situation and were in really desperate situations. I mean, some of the stories that were shared um, of taxi drivers, for example, who were really uh, so far below the poverty line because of what was happening. So there's a whole uh, conversation there in terms of the disparity and economic disparity between groups during the pandemic. And then you come into this area of talking about you know, getting bonuses, you know, and it's like, it just, it's the conversation is just another way of 
pushing this inequality into some sort of normalized space. And, and they made We're not it, having the conversation we should be having. But it's a self-made, it's a self-made, um, it's like literally digging a trap <laughs> and then walking into it yourself. There was, it was, there was no need for it. They didn't well, need to. There is, you, look, we can celebrate Thanksgiving, Tom. I know. You know? <laughs> I, I, I believe it's, I believe yeah. it's North Dakota that calls it Genocide Day, Martin. Yeah, I, could, yeah. I could be wrong on that, but it's 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 one of the Dakotas anyway. Now, I, I feel because we're talking about bonuses, and I have to say this because I have some friends, and and after being in hospital last, you week, have friends. The the nurses who were in the front line on the COVID wards at the beginning of this are still on the front line in the COVID wards in the COVID wards right now. There is no other group of people who have worked so hard at the front line for so long. There just isn't. There just isn't. And I think we need to recognise that these people are still there yeah, 18 I, but, months but, later. But Martin, given a bank holiday doesn't mean that people won't be rostered in, in the health ah, service. Look, the bank holiday is just... And to suggest something like Thanksgiving, it's completely tone deaf, but it's exactly what you expect. Oh. Um, it is exactly what you expect from Fine Gael. I'm just surprised they didn't go for Commonwealth Day. I, I just, you know, I'm surprised that it was Thanksgiving. I would have thought Commonwealth no, Day I, was. I, was it, I don't know what his Waterford Whisper suggested that we we celebrate Cromwell's birthday, but it, it might have been something <laughs> like that. Well, I did, I I did point out that that when they suggested Thanksgiving and the twenty, I think 29th was the day that they suggested. That the founder of Fine Gael's death was the day after Martin. Martin. <laughs> um, just, just if 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 we could actually, because um, you're here, Killian, I'd love to get a lot of the, the the online. We mentioned online comedy, and it did explode over the pandemic. It absolutely did. And thank thanks to people like yourselves, we all got a laugh. And Emma, you said it before we came on. Like it was just, you know, it's it was great. The yeah. hedgerow one was also another favorite of hers. Oh my god! No, 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 no! I, I, uh, I, I was, um, I, I recognised the autobahn um, from the one uh, with, with yourself and Darren and and, and the boys doing. Uh, <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, and, yeah, 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 yeah. And I, I nearly lost my mind. You know, <laughs> I was like, so, uh, so yeah. Can I, can I, can I say? Can I ask you a, a, a blunt question? Did you? Like, did you did you think this is just something I'll go I'll try? You know, I've seen other people doing it, or did was this just something that you were always doing, but you just didn't find the right medium for? Uh, yeah, it was very much. Uh, I mean, I think a lot of people tried new things in the pandemic, and it was uh, it was really just one of those. I mean, you were talking about banana bread earlier. It was really just my version of banana bread and sourdough. I had nothing to do, and and I I wanted to do something, and I also think there was kind of a perfect marrying of certain circumstances like everyone in well a lot of people around the world were experiencing very similar things at the same time so like observationally style kind of oh look at what we're doing humor was very I don't know I think it was very accessible or something like that and then uh I don't know I'd seen people making stuff online for a while and uh and I always had ideas in my head but they were all like really big budget kind of mad things. And then I saw people just doing things in their phone where they're just talking to each other. Yeah, you know, yeah. the Darren Conways or, you know, Michael Fry's and Sean Burke. So yeah, I was like, oh, you just, you, the budget is just your phone. Like you don't need anything else. You just say like, you want to be the old racker. You just put a little sticker here that says, 
Leo Vracker, and everyone goes, oh, okay, it's Leo Vracker, I get it. So it's just like, <laughs> like people are very, they understand concepts very quickly. So it became really easy and interesting. My only problem with that was because we, way back in, it was it was episode six, 69, and everyone's going to say nice. Hey. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but 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 we had um, uh, a, a very, uh, Michael Fry had gone and done a few sketches. I think he had like something like 600 followers on Twitter or something, right? <laughs> and, and I reached, I said, like, we get you on the pod. My big problem is he obviously invented news talk as well as online comedy and, I, you know, and, and i'll never forgive him for that but, but when i see that the stuff you do there's obviously a, a there's a political tinge to some of it as well there's a, a historical political tinge as well so mm. I, I really enjoy that but like is that so so that must be in your writing and in in you know your uh your leanings yeah i kind of worry sometimes i'm a bit soft you know i kind of think uh i i there's a, a, a there's a place i could go to that was a bit stronger and kind of a bit more displaying what my actual opinions are politically but i kind of think i i i baby foot around it a bit too much and then i saw like ty hickey doing like his stuff where he's you know he's quite brutal really oh he doesn't care his, and he doesn't care and he's kind of like uh he does i don't know i think it's really brave and good what he does so i kind of recently started making some kind of stuff about colonization and all that kind of stuff and like the comments you get are just brutal like people just hate you uh, for no reason because you've well i mean i guess you've got a different opinion to them or something like that so i mean i'm i was scared off that. a little yeah martin i'm everybody thinks i'm your best friend and i hate you <laughs> yeah, yeah. but, um, <laughs> but, but i think it, if you were saying about the medium tony but i think if you were a clever tv person and you looked and you could put together a half hour show of these short clips work, but the work is already done. It's a lot. It's yeah, a lot yeah. of work to write half an hour. The lads will tell <laughs> you, you that. You wouldn't. Even, but if you took a, a smorgasbord of these things that were on Twitter and, yeah. and did, I mean, there's easy money in that for a TV show. It's it's kind of like the um, where people watching TV, we watch people watching TV, that kind of thing. Yeah, you know, it's. <laughs> I think there's definitely a market for it, bigger market than than just on Twitter. <laughs> well, tell that to RTE, please. Yeah, literally. Like, how do you like, like, like again? Go back to the whole idea that people seeing us through the the pandemic and how and how it helped, and it absolutely did. Like, um, I again, uh, Eleanor Morton was on with us, whatever. 100 episodes ago and she's put out some brilliant stuff and now mm. she's now she's collaborating with the guys on, on other on other pieces so you love to see that um mm. and, uh, but but it's it's very much a very hard way to make a living killian you know there's no it's like below every sketch yeah. eleanor does it says and buy me a coffee and i feel this is the perfect because we're getting drawn to the, the end of this this is the perfect segue emma there was a shortage of clowns Oh, in, yeah, uh, yeah. In any vacancies <laughs> my word that was uh that was brilliant um a brilliant subject for comedy in northern ireland uh this week now we all had a real good laugh over that one there was no shortage of uh jokes uh, and certainly many would contend there are no shortage of clowns uh, in Northern Ireland, either. So it was a uh, uh, was a good one. I gotta give I, I gotta give Eva Grace more uh, a shout out. She said, "Home, I must go." Yeah, <laughs> hers was great. That was <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But uh, I suppose also just touching on what Killian was saying there too about the uh, you know the hate that you get whenever you dip your toes into politics in this place. Like I know that feeling only too well as well, and that um, temptation, I suppose, to keep your politics closed a little bit. You know, like that is. Um, a really delicate balance uh, 
on this island, across the island, in terms of trying to do that. And the onslaught of abuse that you get can be extremely difficult to deal with. So, I mean, for the first maybe three years of her campaign, I would take all of that on. And then I just stopped uh, engaging with anyone who had a negative um, comment or was trying to undermine my messaging or, you know, just coming in for a negative comment and have adopted a much different approach to how I deal with social media now in that I just block them all. And it's very satisfying. And then as well as that, it's just, I decided to stop engaging with anything negative and only engaging with positive comments because if someone is taking the time to spread positivity to you, I felt it was incumbent on me to be positive back and to kind of pass that on. One thing I'd say, I agree with you on that, Emma, but I think it's also quite funny is the, um, is the, bad faith actors that you both have to deal with all the time. You know, it's that it's particularly you, Emma people, you write a piece in the Irish times and maybe you, maybe it goes viral. You've like a, a thousand people like it, but you also have 13 of the same gobshites every week who decide to have a conversation amongst themselves. In, 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 oh in, my, yeah. yeah. I have a whole circle of them in yeah. the North, a whole circle that have literally spent years of their lives. Uh, they're really, to, I think yeah. they're really your number one fan. Yeah, I think they have a little club and they meet up every week and they talk about Emma yeah. Susan. Oh, they're obsessed with you. you they're obsessed and, with you. you know, that is, and I'm going to remind people look, these podcasts, you have to tell people about this. Tell people about the Sunday show where we have this discussion, where we have some great guests and Emma and Killian and even Tony, you know, we like to, and David, of course, another great guest. But please spread the word. Let your friends know about this. And then they can all come and join in the conversation. But I'd like to thank everybody for coming along today. It's been a great conversation. Uh, Tony. Yeah, thank no, you. there's there's a lot. There's um there's a lot coming next week, but please do check out the tax stuff. I think it's I think it's just it's crazy that our media are reporting. Um, will Ireland move from the 12 and a half to 15 percent? Yes, we will. But what we're not asking is why is the global average 28 and we're dragging countries that depend on that 28 down to 15. We need to we need to really understand what's actually happening there. Um, and we didn't even get to the attorney general and his um, and his uh, conflict of interest and, and, and his portfolio of rental income. You know, there's there's a lot coming, um, including the the boat. Uh, podcast this week with concern and trocra and a, and a lot of budget stuff coming so we'll be back we'll be back in your feed soon so uh, thanks for the support guys we love we love doing these shows and we really appreciate it and killian appreciate it again and emma as always a pleasure we will talk to you all very soon enjoy what's left of your sunday folks take care thanks so much thanks for having us